Well, I wrote this sermon earlier this week, and I think it's probably too ambitious. But that has never deterred me. (laughs) So we'll see where it takes us. Here's what I want to preach about. Uh, I I want to say something a little bit about what I said last week, just to set this as we move towards Christmas, how we understand the themes of the season of Advent. I want to say a word to you about the reading from Micah, because like Zephaniah, uh, the reading from Micah, which is actually, if it was just the Mass and no lessons and carols, that would have been the Old Testament reading, and so we should say something about that. And then the focus of today, this Sunday in Advent, is on Mary, and so it might be a good opportunity to say some things to you about what Episcopalians think and believe about Mary and to say some things to you about the doctrines that surround uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, so that we can bring some precision to them so there'll be a didactic element to this sermon about uh, terminology and so forth. And then uh, we'll see where it takes us. I'll say a word to you about Luke's Gospel where we have... uh, the, the angel Gabriel telling Mary that she uh, is going to conceive and bear a son. When I taught religion at St. Michael's School, uh, the fourth graders down in Tucson, Arizona, and you would say, well, the angel Gabriel and kids would say, well, yeah, but I mean, how could she get pregnant? I mean, she, you know, and I said, well, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And they said, oh. when you're nine these things are far easier so we'll talk a little bit about that remember I say to you all the time one of my favorite lines in the whole of the New Testament is from the epistle to the Hebrews looking to Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith And we understand that in the sense of of Jesus being the template that we lay over our own uh, spiritual life and development so that we ask God now to be present to us to work on our emotional, spiritual, and mental states to live a life more congruent with God's purposes and to have greater clarity and greater vision about who we are and what we believe God wants us to do personally and as a member of the community of faith, the institutional church. And I've been doing some reading this week about the institutional church, and it just reminds me of Father Robert Hoved's comment many years ago, there ain't no other kind. <laughs> so those of you who believe we do that, we can do this by running an end run around the institution. Any spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes. And that means, of course, that the doctrines and the theological pronunciamentos, which are part of the great tradition with a capital T, may not now be as useful to us as they were in other ages, but they're here and they need to be contended with in some way, and we also need to be respectful of the reasons why they may have come up in the first place. So we might understand, or at least some Episcopalians marry as a species of a template, particularly because she raises some important spiritual questions about the nature and the importance of obedience, among other things. 
and I want to talk about that a little bit later. Micah, one of the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets in the Hebrew Bible. He's about number six. And remember, a minor prophet doesn't mean what they had to say was of less significance than a major prophet. It merely means that he had a little book. <laughs> and the major prophets had a big book. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are major prophets. Their books are long. And Obadiah, Micah, Ze Zephaniah, Zechariah, Hosea, Amos, all those people uh, are minor prophets because their books are quite small. We heard from a prophet last week named Zephaniah, who uh, is a minor prophet. And the reason we heard from Zephaniah is it was the only section of his small prophetic book that was upbeat. <laughs> Most of Zephaniah is the blue picture about how things are going to happen to the people. But this was a reading about the uh, restoration uh, of the people of Israel and the reconciliation of the people of Israel with God's plan. And it's about exile and return. And why do we read it in Advent? Because if it's a season of hope, expectancy, joy, those are things that have something to do with the idea that things are going to now come into some sense of maturity and completion. You know, Jesus in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, says you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in the Greek New Testament, the word per perfect doesn't mean perfect. It means mature. And I've said this to you many times before. Mature, I think I can try to do. I am not able to do perfect. And a lot of people have become sick or crazy trying. So this is a hopeful testimony, Zephaniah, last week about God's restorative purposes and all of the followers of Jesus, the eyewitnesses, saw in him the bearer of this process of reconciliation and restoration. And this is what is continuously being predicted and talked about in the season of Advent. And so today we have a, uh, the prophet Micah, who was not unlike Zephaniah, Although, for people who are biblical scholars, the composition of the Micah's book is not unlike Isaiah. And what that means is, is that there was probably a first part that was written by Micah, and then the other pieces were written by his disciples and his followers. And it spans a fair amount of time in terms of what it talks about. So Micah lived from about... Um, let's say uh, 789 BCE to maybe 700 and uh, we go backwards. So it'd be 798 to about 778. So that's when he did, did this. And at the end of his book, he's talking about stuff that went on in the 500s. So clearly it has something to do with people who followed him and his prophetic uh, outlook and believed that it was necessary to speak about restoration, return from exile. Today, we read this reading because it's about a prediction that will appear in Matthew's Gospel in the infancy narratives about the birth of Jesus. And it says in Matthew, who quotes from Micah, 
that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. And another important person who was born in Bethlehem was King David. And in Matthew's genealogy, he hooks David up with Jesus. So it is important to say God's redemptive purposes, the continuity of God's saving work, is present even in our own sacred literature, and we will see it now come into its unique focus in the person of Jesus Christ. So that sort of sets us up uh, for the fourth Sunday of Advent. I mentioned I'd say something to you about the, the themes of Advent, and they're important to take with you as you come to Christmas. Repentance, turning around and looking at your life in a new way, doing it in an internal process of self-reflection and examination, and then deciding how you're going to put it into your hands and make it real uh, in the world. Expectation is permitting the full range of your imaginative powers to be brought to bear on what might be in your life. So when you say, I'm an expectant person, it means you're somebody who has some imagination. You know, we live in a culture that may seem like it's full of all kinds of new things and all, you know, but imagination is not as highly valued as it might be. And we need to say imagination is important both for our own personal, emotional, spiritual, and mental well-being, but it's also important for us as a community of faith together because if we have some imagination about how we're going to do things, um, there's great possibility. Hope, I mentioned somebody said to me years ago, honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm, the way you have an attitude in your life that you're going to be, uh, you're going to mean what you say and be a person of goodwill. You're going to be open to listening to new things. You're going to be persistent in cultivating the internal stamina and self-regulation that you need to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of you and you're going to remain enthusiastic so that you really still touch that thing which originally made you do what you want to do in your relationship, in your vocation, in your career, in your child rearing, in any of the things that you do. Joy is the conviction in the Christian life that the uncertainties and conundrums and ambiguities of your life can and will come into surer and clearer focus. And how that happens is by virtue of saying, I'm going to live a life of some intention, which means to express the willingness to extend and give of yourself. It also means to be honest, open, persistent, and enthusiastic. It means that you are going to uh, live, in an, uh, live in a way that says, this stuff I'm going to get one of these days even if it's by inches. So all those things are going to go with us into Christmas, where we see it now made flesh, and we see in a human being the highest of human potentiality in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to come. So bear that in mind. So let's say a word now about Mary. Um, if, if really the truth be told... Uh, what Episcopalians believe about Mary is a lot. I mean, that is to say, some believe 
that she's not very important at all, and others believe probably what the Roman Catholics would say about Mary. So that's the range within our tradition. So I, I looked something up. It's not always terribly reliable, but in Wikipedia, <laughs> since a lot of people go there, I thought, well, let's, you know, uh, Mary's special position within God's purpose of salvation as God-bearer, that's why I say God-bearer, I don't say the Blessed Virgin Mary in the canon, I say God-bearer, Father Emerson says Theotokos because he's trying to be highfalutin. <laughs> but he's right because that's what it is in the Greek Theotokos means God bearer I say God bearer because then they'll you know that's a little easier to put your hands around and it also steps away from the whole issue that I'm going to talk about in a couple of minutes which is the ever blessed virgin Mary or um, in some places ever virgin Mary and we'll just talk about that. The church affirms in the historic creeds, this is the Anglican perspective on this, uh, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and celebrates the feast days of the presentation of Christ in the temple. The feast is called in older prayer books the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary on the 2nd of February, the Annunciation of our Lord to the Blessed Virgin on the 25th of March, and was celebrated in our tradition from before Bede, who lived in the 8th century. And to, um, the Annunciation is called the Annunciation of Our Lady in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, hardly a fever swamp of Anglo-Catholicism. <laughs> Anglicans also celebrate in the visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary on the 31st of May, though in some provinces the traditional date of July the 2nd is kept. The Feast of St. Mary, the Virgin, is observed on the traditional day of the Assumption on August the 15th. Here are the two problems for Anglicans. The doctrine of the Assumption and the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Okay? The Feast of the Immaculate Conception is on December the 8th, and in the 1662 prayer book, it is in the calendar and called the Conception. Not the Immaculate Conception, 16 to 1662 book. So Roman Catholics and Episcopalians or Anglicans about a year ago came out with a statement about this and said, here's what we're going to do. There are a lot of Episcopalians who believe that these doctrines of the Assumption and of the Immaculate Conception do not have sufficient scriptural support to be uh, held as true. But what we've decided to do is to just get over it. <laughs> I'm serious. That means if you want to believe that, you can, right? before it was a deal breaker. So out of ecumenical solicitude, we're going to focus on other things, probably a good plan. <laughs> In the, on the feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary on August the 15th, that's what we call it as Episcopalians, the collect that we read, you know, at the beginning of the Mass, is the collect for the Assumption. 
So it's a sort of typical Episcopalian thing, you know. We read the Collect for the Assumption, but we don't call it the Assumption. That's a late uh, doc, 1950, Pope Pius XII promulgated the doctrine of the Assumption, which means, you know, she was assumed bodily into heaven. And so some have said that is a major league assumption. <laughs> so let's explain some differences so that you get, get this. And then I'll talk about Luke's view of Mary and how we should understand the, a, one of the concepts I'm going to talk about. In the gospel that I read today, what is being talked about is something in theology that's called the virginal conception. That is not the same as the immaculate conception. They are two different things. The immaculate conception is the belief that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin. So in so many words it means that she was uh, born with post-baptismal grace. This is medieval stuff, and you guys are probably all going, well, I don't know. <laughs> on this anyway. <laughs> At one time it loomed very large, you know. My view is that the Protestant reformers got uh, twisted up about Mary principally because of the extravagant piety that was expressed with regard to the veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And there are none of us here anytime soon are probably going to make our way on our knees with an armload of gladiolas, uh, you know, into some Marian shrine. I just don't think it's going to happen. So I don't think that we're in any danger of going over the top. But it might be important to say that Mary has some role to play in the whole idea of uh, obedience. So that's what I want to talk about now. And then I'm going to talk about the virginal conception. Okay? Obedience is understood by most people, I, I uh, got some more precision in this, as rule-keeping, commandment compliance, performance according to precepts, and works. So most of us understand obedience to be those kinds of things. However, in the thought world of the time of Jesus, the Hebrew outlook would have included all of those things, but they also would have understand, understood what obedience means uh, in, in the Latin translation, which is to listen, to be a listener, to hear. And to hear in more than one way, to listen to spiritual things. You hear me say that's the still small voice within that you know is not your own. To understand something about listening to what God, uh, what, what you believe God wants you to do. And when I say this, I'm not talking about having some uh, religious vision. I'm talking about the affirmation of what it is you do to be the best human being that you can be, and that may have a lot to do with what you do in your life. Life, which is the spiritual life. 
So in that sense, that's sort of what we might mean about that. Mary is an example of someone who said, I'm in the midst of a whole lot of things that I simply cannot fully grasp, and yet I will proceed. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been some things that have gone on in my own life where I've said, you know what, I, this is a, a dark road at this particular point. I don't know what the end is going to be, but I've made the decision to go on it. And remember, the Savior invites each of you to join him on the way. He doesn't invite you to accept a whole raft of, of doctrines and discipline and things. He's inviting you to accompany him on the journey. And so that is what it is that Mary agreed to do. And for that, in one sense, she's a template. The other thing that I think is very important is what does Luke put in Mary's mouth that I read to you today, the Magnificat? Luke is more concerned than any other gospel writer about issues of social justice and equity. And in the Magnificat, we see here Mary speaking very clearly about God's purposes for the world and cooperating with them in the sense that those who are on the margins and those who are on the bottom are going to be exalted by God and that you and I, if we understand Jesus as the template, and Mary in some ways is some species of template, means that we've got to be part of that process where we seek to bring into our common life together as human beings and society uh, a situation where it is easier for people to be good, a situation where there is more equity. Nancy and I have started to re we've had these see, uh, these, whatever they are, DVDs for years, the Civilization series by Sir Kenneth Clark. And I was watching it last night and he talked about uh, in there uh, the importance of um, how many of us don't give enough credit to the serendipity that occurs to us that's positive or the benefits that we receive on the backs of other people. And I don't mean that I have joined the Bolsheviks and got into the bomb-throwing department. <laughs> what I do mean is, is that we have, in fact, sometimes are blind to that. And what Mary is speaking about is how this now comes up to some <clears throat> level. And what did John the Baptist say? You know, the hills are going to come down and the, and the valleys are going to come up and God's plan for us is smooth. And that means for everybody. So Mary isn't some sort of patsy in this deal. She's a very important figure in God's plan for salvation. And you and I can take from this the importance of obedience and being good listeners to what God wants us to do also listening to the practical wisdom that other people have that they've offered to you without prejudice. If they offer it to you with prejudice, let it go. <laughs> but stuff that's done in all humility is important, I think, to listen to. Now, the virginal conception. This is highfalutin, but just bear with me. In the Hebrew Bible, 
Uh, first of all, we have in Matthew's Gospel the announcement, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Mighty Holy Counselor, whatever, I can't remember. It's a direct quote or a quote from the book of the prophet Isaiah. All right? Matthew's Gospel uh, was written by somebody who very well may have been a rabbi and read in a new Hebrew. And instead of using the Hebrew Bible, the book of the prophet Isaiah is written in Hebrew, and it says in the translation out of the Hebrew, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb. Alma, it means a young woman of marriageable age. Doesn't mean virgin. There is another... Uh, Old Testament that we use a lot, and it's written in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And the word in the Septuagint for Alma is Parthenos, virgin. And Matthew uses the Septuagint in this quotation, not the Hebrew Bible. Well, so... Well, what he's at pains to do here and the other gospel writers like Luke who have an infancy narrative is to say, we are in possession of a pre-existing tradition of long-standing, Reginald Fuller would call it the Palestinian stratum of the oral tradition that has believed and said and sought in the oral tradition that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. So they are transmitting that tradition in the biblical witness. Well, what do we do with that? Well, you need to decide. The faith of Christianity doesn't rise and fall on whether you believe in the virginal conception or not. It is important to say that the biblical writers took pains to continue that tradition that they were in possession of before they wrote their gospel or had had passed along to them. So it must have been hallowed, at least in some ways, by usage. Reginald Fuller says this, all that the histor historian can say with certainty is that the basic elements in this tradition are earlier than Matthew and Luke for the name of Mary, for her virginity, and the function of the Holy Spirit are common to both Matthew and Luke who are otherwise independent of one another at this point. Many would also argue that these traditions can be traced back to the earliest Palestinian stratum of Christianity. Remember I told you that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all related. Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark to write their gospel. Matthew and Luke had material that was unique to them called special M for Matthew and special L for Luke. And in the infancy narratives, the story of Jesus' birth that occur only in Matthew and Luke, those two traditions are independent of one another except here. That's what he meant. So I'm merely saying to you, this is unbelievable. 
uh, on purpose. You need to know that somebody took some pains uh, to do this kind of thing. And maybe it has something to do with what my teacher O.C. Edwards said. You've heard me say this a lot. It's not important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means. So they're at pains to transmit this for some reason. Here's what we take with us this week. The great expectation that is upon us. And when we come to Christmas every year, each of you are going to be able to look at those, these Advent themes and to see how they're going to play in your life. So when you make New Year's resolutions, it's a species of repentance. When you're expectant about your, what's coming up in the year, it means you're, allowed, you, you're allowing yourself to be imaginative about what might be. And God knows in this particular economy and everything that we're going through, a little imagination can't hurt and might help. Right? We're to be hopeful that that might be so. And we respond and cooperate with being hopeful by being honest, open, persistent, and enthusiastic. And finally, joyfully, we accept this because we know that stuff that isn't clear can and will come clearer. So give thanks for that this week. And uh, we're right on the verge of one of the great feasts of the Christian year. Amen. Amen. Amen.